The Men's Room, a talk sport podcast in partnership with Toolstation. From masculinity to mental health, friendship to fatherhood, join Tom Skinner and Neil Razor Ruddock for the podcast that gets to the nuts and bolts of what it really means to be a man. Listen and follow now via your preferred podcast portal. The Men's Room, in partnership with Toolstation. Save 5% on everything you need for a whole month with the new Toolstation Club. Join today online, in-store or via the app. Yeah, hold that please, level 5, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Hi, now the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what, sorry? The single most important thing is to Ertz and the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. to following on here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and as always, former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. So England keep their T20 series against the West Indies alive thanks to a thrilling seven-wicket win on Saturday night. And we'll look back at that game as Phil Salt scored his maiden T20i century. Uh, Lancashire Thunder bowler Phoebe Graham joins us to look back at England's one-off test match against India and uh, as Heather Knight's team fell to a 347-run defeat in Mumbai. We'll also discuss the latest England Lions squad named to tour India alongside the the main team for their five-test tour. We'll end the show by discussing a massive milestone for Australian spinner Nathan Lyon and there's also been a change in the dressing room at Lancashire. So plenty to come over the next hour. You're listening to Following On. Well, let's get straight down to a thrilling T20 game, Homie. Um, England chasing down 223. Phil Salt um, and, in fact, Josh Butler did so much of the work to lay the foundation. And, of course, it was the seven balls that Harry Brook faced at the end, which uh, got most of the headlines. But Phil Salt, brilliant, 109 not out. They took the game deep. I'm not sure that they intended to leave themselves 37 off the last... <laughs> 13 balls, but um, you've got to give yourself a chance. They did that and they took it. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, Phil Salt was absolutely magnificent. The icing on the kick was put by, obviously, were, were Harry Brook, but said many, many times, man, as when you talk about playing you know, the shortest format of cricket, if you're still in the game with 12 balls to go, no matter what number, you've, got, you've still got a chance because a bowler can panic, 12 balls turns into... 14 balls, 15 balls, whether wide or a no ball because a, a ball is overstepping or anything like that. So because England were they got off to such a great start and were, were able to take it deep, you know, Butler played his part. Livingston came in and played his part batting around Phil Salt. But Phil Salt, for me, was absolutely magnificent. And he also did the smart thing is, as they do, which was to target the bowlers. You know, the two probably quicker bowlers on show for the West Indies and Andre Russell and and Alzari Joseph, they used the pace very, very well um, in their scoring areas. So it was a great performance. I think it probably was one of the best ever run chases England have, have ever had, not because of the number, but because of the way they went about their, the way they went about the duty of, of getting to a position to, to really ram home advantage with five overs to go, not losing the wickets, because you know, wickets is everything in the shorts format of the game to slow the run rate down. They didn't have a choice. They had to keep up with the run rate. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a brilliant finish to the game. Okay, there are two things I want to ask you. The first is about Phil Salt and his future in the team. Is there such a, a concern about who might have to give Johnny Bairstow the tap on the shoulder and uh, the, um, the move aside talk? Um, is, is, it, is it a concern about that? or are they? I mean, Phil Salt, you would think, has done enough to... I don't know, get a regular place at the top of the order now. You would think so. I think it was it was always gonna be Jax or, or Salt who would who would make way for, for Johnny Bairstow. And you Johnny Bear you have to make way for Johnny Bairstow because he is so, so good. But if you go back to Saturday morning, that was a a proposition and a problem that England would have you know, would be jumping at the uh, the chance to make because of the way England were playing at that time. 
now it's a nice problem to have because what Phil Sott's done, he's not. It's not just a one innings thing. This this is going to help him over the course of the next you know, four or five games leading into a world competition because now he's just. He's now just won more or less a game by himself. That confidence that will come from just doing that, his place should now be securely in the team. Um, and it's it's a nice problem for Josh Butler and Matthew Mott to have when it comes to um, bringing Johnny Bairstow back into the group, Ben Stokes back into the group, Mark Wood back into the group, possibly Jofra Archer. You know, we don't know where Jofra is going to be come June or July, uh, in June. So they're probably the four that are going to come back into this T20 group. They're nice problems to have, especially if you can if you can be winning in the process. But Phil Salt's done himself the world of good by the way he's just performed. And yeah, I think Will Jacks has done himself the world of good on this tour as well, because he's performed very, very well. So yeah, all in all, they're good problems to have. We talk a lot about batsmen's power and skill and placement and and uh, their actual batting ability. And I don't think enough perhaps is spoken about in a in a finishing situation like that in particular. Uh, a batter's ability to read the bowler. I know that you get a lot of clues from the field, so you've got a pretty good idea whether he's going to be going full and wide or, or full and straight or, or, or into the pitch, that kind of thing. But I may have been imagining it. But was Harry Brook almost reading what Andre Russell was going to bowl in that last over? Not Not almost, actually. I got the impression that he knew exactly what he was going to bowl. Yeah, I think he did, and I think... What you what you had was you had somebody who was supremely confident in Harry Brook and you know for the for the big sort of Dre Russell all singing all dancing package that you get with him he's not the most confident bowler and especially not the most confident bowler at the minute but because the way the West Indies have picked their side and the way the the balance is you know Russell has to bowl four overs and I think because of that I think England chose the right person. As well as Aljari Joseph, because Aljari Joseph in this series has been has been very very expensive. He's probably their best bowler, but he's got wickets and he didn't get what, but he didn't get any wickets. He got one wicket the other night. So I think Harry Brook was sensing where Andrea Russell was going to bowl, where Aljari Joseph was going to bowl when when Salt was batting, and I think they could easily find the boundary because of the pressure that they were they were putting on the bowler by getting early balls in the over for six or four. When you're at an early ball, first ball, second ball, six or four, and all of a sudden the bowler's under unbelievable pressure, and that's what ha- that's what's happened to Russell over the course of the next the last couple of games. And it'll be interesting to see if the balance of the West Indies side changes, or maybe Kyle Myers bowls a couple of overs in, in early in the game just to give Rothman Powell the, the flexibility of, of not bowling a Joseph or a, a Russell out and bowl their four overs because England definitely seized that, that moment, understood which bowlers needed to be hit, and, and they hit them. OK, what about England's bowling? I think Reese Topley and Adil Rashid have been very impressive. Uh, and we, we, again, we look from an England point of view and uh, we say that uh, the death bowling is a problem. But then, you know, boxers found that Mike Tyson was a problem uh, in, the, in the 90s. You know, they, they could have got together and said, he keeps knocking us out. Yeah, well, it, it is Mike Tyson. Is it just the power of the West Indies? Would they <laughs> would they be taking seventy off the last four overs against anybody? I think I think there's there's an element of that. I think there is a, a lot of that. This West Indian side will get everybody. You know, no matter whether it's Indian spinners or you know Bumrah bowling at the death, these guys hit the ball long way. They are power power players, the West Indies. So from that point of view, I think you can you can have the argument that no matter who's bowling, there's a good chance these are going to get. 60 off the last four, you know, because that's the way they've set their game up. And they're good players. They're good players are hitting the, the, the slower ball, the good players are hitting the Yorker, the good players are hitting the shorter ball out of the ground, wide Yorkers, wherever you want, they seem to get them out of the ground. But there's also, from England's point of view, of execution. And I'm not sure I'm not sure the execution has been great. I really don't see the execution being great. And I don't think the plans have been great either. You can go back to not the last game, the one before, you watch somebody like Alzari Joseph, who's been expensive in this competition, probably bowled his best, but he's seen that the pitch had something in it for the seamer, an inconsistent natural variation from the middle of the wicket or a back of a length. And he bowled all his balls back of the length. And he was very, very difficult to hit for six. Now, for me, England, I don't think they've read the situation too well on this tour. And I think some of their plans have been 
left wanting for a better way of describing it. That's the way England have bowled for me in this in this tournament so far. But you've got to be there to hit it out the park, and the West Indies have hit it out the park. But I don't think England have bowled really uh, bowled well on this trip, especially in the death overs. Okay, well, you mentioned Liam Livingston there, a man on the ground. Sam Allard caught up with uh, him a little earlier and uh, discussed uh, his contribution, as you mentioned, 30 off 18 balls. It was a bit part, but an important one. There's a World Cup in six, eight months, whenever whenever it is, and that's the biggest goal for us at the moment. And I guess the more sort of games you have, like the last two, um, where we get in scenarios where you've got a chance of winning the game is, is win or lose is probably the best thing for us. Having them experiences at the end of the game where it's close, that's exactly what you want going into World Cups and um, you want to find a way to, to come out on the right side of them. So as long as we're taking loads of learnings from these games and, and learning what works, what doesn't work, what works for us as a group, we play cricket very different to the West Indies. So, yeah, we've got to concentrate on us, work out our plans and the best way to go about cricket out here. And I think this last month will serve us in really good stead in six months' time. And you mentioned there as well um, the importance of the victory. Is it giving everybody in the in the camp kind of a, a much-needed boost? Did you feel as if maybe coming towards the end of a, a long winter, I mean, you're one of the few players that were involved in kind of the World Cup in this, is it, did it feel like it's kind of given everyone that a new lease of life kind of going into the last couple of games? Or did you, did you kind of feel as if spirits have, have always kind of been quite high with some new faces joining for the, the West Indies part of this winter? Yeah, I think spirits have always been pretty high, but no one likes losing. Um, we've obviously lost more than we would have liked over the last few months, but um, I wouldn't say people have, have been really down on themselves. I feel like the environment within the group has been really good, but you want to win games of cricket for England, and I guess that was probably the nicest thing the other day was we won a game of Eng- uh, won a game of cricket for England and then had a nice drink together back at, at the hotel as a group, and it's, it's just very different. So, yeah, you could say it's, it's given us a little boost, and... I guess the biggest thing is it'll give us a lot of confidence and and that's the main thing. So hopefully going forward in the next two games that that we can make use of that. That was uh, Liam Livingston talking to our man on the ground in the Caribbean following the tour, Sam Ellard. And a reminder, you can hear live and exclusive ball-by-ball commentary of the final 220s between the West Indies and England this week on TalkSport 2. You're listening to Following On right here on TalkSport 2. Uh, And next up, we'll turn our attention to the women's test as England suffer a very heavy defeat at the hands of India in Mumbai. She's eight of five. She's probably still disappointed that single at the end of the last over. And this could be out. Is it? I think that is. She stood there for a moment. But I think she's caught at silly point. Left arm orthodox coming around the wicket, straightening the ball. She pushed that off the face and has been caught under the lid. And that is the end of the Test match. India win by 347 runs. You're listening to Following On here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside Double Ashes winner Steve Harmison. Uh, so that was how England's 347-run defeat to India in the women's Test match sounded here on TalkSport 2. 347-run defeat. Um, let's uh, actually, before we speak to Phoebe Graham, as promised, let's hear from the England captain, Heather Knight, uh, who was explaining afterwards why she was quite philosophical about the, the defeat and um, and the weight of it. Very extreme conditions for us. Um, I think something that's, that India does to you as a cricketer when, when you do face these extreme conditions, it really challenges you and, and exposes areas in your game that you need to be better and different skill sets that you need to have in different conditions. And also knowing when to, to pick out different skills at different times against different bowlers in different conditions. And I think what India's conditions do when it is that extreme, it really exposes those. So I think it will give us a good chance when we don't face it as an extreme conditions to, to kind of have those skill sets now that we know what they are and for the younger players in particular, how, how they can get better in those areas and, and knowing when to use their, their different skills at, at certain points. So, yeah, I think it's a huge learning tool. Obviously, it's, it's quite a weird one with the Red Bull in, in isolation. It's quite strange. You were two days, obviously, the girls involved in the T20 series to prepare, and that can be quite tricky. But, yeah, so I think that's why we're kind of quite philosophical, obviously, about losing the Test match. Obviously, we, we're desperate to win it and desperate to play really well. Um, but I think the way India played, uh, they must be outplayed. That was England captain Heather Knight reflecting on playing in extreme conditions over in Mumbai. Um, I'm delighted to say that uh, part of our commentary team for that Test match was the Lancashire bowler Phoebe Graham, who 
as promised at the top of the show now joins us live to look back on uh, on that that test match which was which was a belting phoebe let's not uh, hide away from it england bowled out for 150 twice but then there were only two or three days between the t20 series and that test match was it just too much of an ask i mean i know that we're used to men's cricketers having to switch between formats at you know a day's notice but it did seem uh, well as heather said extreme in many ways yeah i think the scheduling's been quite funny in the women's game over the past couple of weeks but India had to face into the same challenges that England had. And India also played back-to-back test match against Australia on the 21st. So I think to lean on that as an excuse isn't really the right thing to do, particularly when there were quite a few girls in camp that had focused only on Red Bull training for a five-week period. So it's hard to blame it on the scheduling. I think England didn't really turn up, if I'm honest. Yeah, and I think there was a, a crushing defeat, Phoebe, but I've heard one or two of the of the women's cricketers talk about preparing for the red ball game. How easy is it to go from red ball to white ball? Because I think it was Kate Cross who said, you know, we do we do all this preparation about white ball cricket, white ball cricket for like ashes and stuff like that, and then there's a test match tagged on the end. This time we've prepared a hell of a lot, emphasis more emphasis on red ball cricket. Did they get mixed up or was it something that in their preparation wasn't, I think, not cover all bases to, to why the defeat came as, as big as it did? Well, the one thing that they were vulnerable to was the spin. And the Indian spinners do bowl five or ten miles an hour slower than any of the English spinners. So the likes of Verma, who took nine for, does bowl at about 45 miles an hour versus Sophie Eccleston at 55 miles an hour. So that's what stung them was the spin, the sting of the spin. But they were only able to last around 60 overs with the bat for both innings, which isn't representative of that England team in terms of the talent and the depth that they've got in that batting lineup. So I think potentially the surface, the spin is a big focus that they need to work on, particularly with the World Cup that's going to be played out in Sri Lanka because they're going to come against those same challenges against in the subcontinent. Just looked really difficult for, for the batters to... It was a lack of pace, exactly as you say. There was nothing to work with. Um, you, you have to sort of do all the work, don't you, as a, as a batter? And you've, you need to, to hit the ball rather than work it or guide it. And, and it just seemed um, frustrating. But it's, again, there, you're talking about playing... A World Cup, but as far as Test cricket is concerned, uh, you know Heather talked about developing the skills, but it's a bit like a five thousand meter runner who is required to run a marathon once every two years. You know how how much effort do you apply to to working on those skills for Test cricket when there's only a, a game every year or two? Yeah, and I think it can be very exposing in the international arena as well because we don't play any multi day format domestically. So that's the big challenge is that we do want to be playing more multi-day cricket, more test cricket, because it's the pinnacle of what cricket is. But it does leave it to be exposed when it doesn't go well. You Having to test your skills for longer, that's one of the biggest skills in test cricket. But I think the fact that England didn't even bat 50 overs apiece, we'd never see them really bowled out in less than 50 overs in ODI cricket. So I think it was just a really terrible couple of days cricket for them they got caught in the crease not committing going forward not committing going back and seen a couple of players like Wyatt and Jones make the same mistake in the second innings as they did in the first so I think it was just a a poor day out for England and it's even more exposed because it's on the test stage. Also part of our commentary team was uh, the Guardian's Raf Nicholson I should say Dr. Raf Nicholson, because uh, I think she's the first doctor we've had commentating on TalkSport 2. And I think if you if you work hard enough to get a doctorate, you ought to be recognised for doing so. She said um, on the brief time she was on air that John Lewis could be under pressure um, as, as coach. You know, the shock defeat to Sri Lanka in the summer. Um, I thought that was perhaps a bit harsh. And I'm, I, I don't want to drag you into a headline here, but um, is, is his position being examined? I think it was very harsh critiques really from 
Raph, we saw him create an unbelievable bounce back to draw the Ashes series this summer when England were almost dead and buried. They came back and that shift in man- mentality and to draw that series was was phenomenal, really. And Sri Lanka, they played a young side that wasn't experienced. I think the thing that that's clear that they need to work on is batting against spin and particularly that slower pace spin because that's what got them out in the Sri Lanka series again. So they can take common themes from the two series, but I don't think his position will be under threat. I think it's just really clear what they need to work on going into the next series. Yeah, you mentioned playing spin and working on going into the next series. You know, the World Cup is out in the subcontinent. How concerning would you be as an England fan watching the way England have played spin going into that? And do England have anybody else to potentially come in that is spin specialist that potentially could take the burden on their shoulders in that, especially in that middle order? Um, because it looked as though once Heather Knight, Natsgiver Brun got out, it was about how many balls is it going to take to bowl England out? Where somebody else in the middle order that plays spin well, who might not be on this trip, is that, is that an area where England maybe need to, to improve on? Yeah, I think there's plenty of batters that have got the capability to take spin down and it's about being positive. And when there's less pace on the ball, you do get caught in between minds because you've got to be quick to the ball, even though the ball's coming at 45 miles an hour, which is where it becomes more challenging. But you've got the likes of Bess Heath, who's a powerhouse that can hit the ball and clear the ropes. Maya Boucher, who's had phenomenal season this summer and they weren't presented with opportunities in the test match which are they ready I suppose that's where maybe John Lewis takes more of a pun on them coming into the next series in New Zealand so there are batters that have the capabilities and I think it's just instilling confidence into the girls so that they can be really positive and either commit forward or commit back because it's that when you're caught in the crease, you're in no man's land. And unfortunately, we saw that multiple times with Firma taking her nine for and taking advantage of that. Phoebe Graham, it's such a pleasure to talk to you as always. It's been too long. Don't let it be quite as long until we hear from you again. And enjoy the rest of the winter and um, Merry Christmas. Cheers. Merry Christmas to you both too. That's Lancashire Thunder Bowler Phoebe Graham. Uh, you're listening to Following On here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And next up, we'll take a look at the England Lions squad to play in India. The Men's Room, a TalkSport podcast in partnership with Toolstation. From masculinity to mental health, friendship to fatherhood. Join Tom Skinner and Neil Razor Ruddock for the podcast that gets to the nuts and bolts of what it really means to be a man. Listen and follow now via your preferred podcast portal. The Men's Room, in partnership with Toolstation. Save 5% on everything you need for a whole month with the new Toolstation Club. Join today online, in-store, or via the app. Hold that, please. Level 5, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to work in the channelised Bingbingus at the Bypassal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to Following On here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And as always, if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can uh, download the podcast from the Following On feed, which is available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn our attention then, Harmy, to the uh, England Lions tour. They're going to be playing sort of in parallel with uh, the test team. Um, They're playing three four-day games. Uh, in Ahmedabad, January, February, just sort of in the first, uh, over the course of the first three and a half of the five test matches. It's essentially um, a, a second 11 squad. There are some pretty interesting names in it. 
And I can't help thinking that, you know, you look at the likes of Alex Lease, Keaton Jennings, Matthew Potts, Matt Fisher, Bryden Cass. Given the balance of the test squad and the fact that there's only four seamers, I can't help thinking that one or two or even three of those uh, Lions players are going to get a test match at some point. Yeah, I, I, I was exactly the same when I was writing it down. I was looking at the 15-man the squad then trying to put them into a, an 11 who would probably be your best 11 if it's you know the next cab's off the rank. Lees and Jennings, that's a good selection because I think in England could be vulnerable at the top of the order in India when it comes to, depending on what, what happens with what balance England go with, two seamers, you know, four bowlers or five bowlers. If they go with four, bowl, uh, four bowlers, then I do think you're right. I think there's quite a few of these bowlers might get a game in. That's on the Lions trip in in the Test Series. Um, but I think England are quite strong in the middle order when it comes to you know, Root, possibly Bairstow, possibly Brook, probably, yeah, and Stokes in that middle order. And they'll be as long as Ben's fully fit or he's fit enough to get onto the park, they'll be, they're not up for a sort of selection dilemma. I think one, two, and three, depending on where, where Root bats. But if you look at Bucket, Crawley, and Pope, them, them three in the, the conditions that India have, they don't worry me, but there could be a loss of form or question marks on, on England's top order that Jennings and Lees, probably next to more experienced players that England have got. It's, not, it's good to have them in, in, in India just in case anything happens. Robinson, I think that's a good selection, Ollie Robinson, because I think he's, cl- he's close to, to sort of pushing for a, a test spot, especially the way he batted for Durham. His he's way of keeping is, is very, very good. Um, and the the likes of Potts, Cars, Fisher, who's played before Laws, who's you know had a, a good season for for Surrey, I would imagine with overs under their belt, ready just in case something happens in that sort of their middle uh, Test matches in Test matches three or four, because you know the England's balance of side would you know not the most durable when it comes to five Test matches. Anderson can't question you can't you can't question Jimmy's. Ability, but yeah, you know, obviously you've you've got to look at the factor of his age, and you look at Robinson, who we which Ollie Robinson is going to turn up, you know, which one do we expect him to turn up? So I think because of that, I think it's a very very it's as good a squad as we probably could have picked. But I do believe that quite a few of these seam bowlers will be involved in the in the Test series for England come Test matches three, four, and five. Just another thought, Harmy. I I just wonder whether this. Um... England Lions squad will actually be better acclimatised and get better preparation than the actual test squad. And I haven't been able to confirm this, but I have heard from a source I would regard as usually extremely reliable that there there are two eight-day gaps between test matches. There's only three days between the first and second and uh, and fourth and fifth, or third and fourth. But there are two eight-day gaps. And my understanding is that the... England test squad is to be relocated to Dubai. They're not even going to stay in India. Uh, and I, I find that really, really difficult to swallow, let alone digest. Yeah, well, I've heard the same thing. And I've also heard that England's preparation is going to be in Dubai as well. So they're going to come in literally the, the week of the, the first test. It might be as is, is, is late as three days before the first test. So if England come in three days before the first test and then spend the eight days, like you're talking about, in Dubai, then for me that that would be an absolute shocker. It really would. I, and I tell you what, I tell you what, I'd love to know what the likes of Nasser Hussein and people like that think because I got so much stick when I played for England, having two, three warm-up games and you know former players criticising my England cricket team, going, "You're not prepared enough." And I know times have changed. You're not prepared enough. You've only played two four-day games. You've only you haven't played enough, bold enough in practice before that first test, especially the Ashes series. So I know times have changed, and we are old. And I'm I'm on the fence of a, an old man that people just look at me and think, you know, the game the game's changed that much that preparing in Dubai for a five-test match series against in India in India is a good idea. I'm sorry, you want your head red. These lads from the Lions trip will be in India longer than what the Test Series will last. Yeah, they will. Their, their cricket will be longer than what the, that Test Series will last if England don't prepare. 
properly. You know, they can say what they want about preparing in Dubai. You go into India. I had this rant last week. You know, you've, you've got issues with some of your bowlers. You've got four spinners that you've took over to India, and three of them have never bowled in India before. It beggars belief if them rumours are, are true. I'm not that bothered about them playing a 40 game beforehand because the way the modern schedule is, the way the modern player is, yes, times have changed. I get that. But to spend to spend 18 days or 16 days in Dubai before the first, in flying three days before the first test, it's not only madness. You know, I played in some of the shortest Ashes series, five test match series in Australia. I tell you what, this will break that because England, for me, they wouldn't stand a chance if they're going to spend all that time in Dubai. Okay, I'm just going to um, put the counter argument there. Is it, what if uh, Brenda McCallum says we we don't want to take the risk of practice conditions being below standard, not up to scratch, and uh, we know that uh, whether by design or accident, this has happened on previous tours of India, and so he might say we'd rather go to the academy, the ICC academy in Dubai, where we know that we can have pitches uh, prepared to our liking. Uh, there's a full-size ground. We can play inter-squad games and uh, and work really hard, and, and we know that the conditions will be up to scratch. However, a certain part of me can't help wondering whether it's more about the international cuisine and the golf courses in Dubai. Yeah, there's a there's a valid point in, in that. And you know, if that argument, counter-argument was put to me, I'd be going, yeah, that's fine. If you're playing in Mumbai, if you're playing in Bangalore, if you're playing Eden Gardens or you're playing at the Wankiri, you know, you're, you're being up. You're playing first test in Hyderabad. Then you're playing in Rajkot, Ranchi, you're at Damasala. You're not playing in the more traditional big cities. You're not play- You're going to the outback of India, you know, where it is going to be tough. You know, the hotels aren't as good as the ones in in India. Just everything about the changing facilities and everything about you know the grounds that you're going to is completely different to what where the World Cup has been. So the air air quality is different. Yeah, you know, in in India compared to to sort of Dubai, all these things for me, and it's not so much the batters that that I'd, I'd be concerned about. It's the bowlers. The bowlers, you know, I, I look at the England cricket team going to India for five test matches. And I, I'm not saying, and, and I, I mean this with all due respect, I struggle to see where England are going to get 20 wickets from. But if they are, if they are so underprepared going into that, then they're, just, they're not giving themselves the best chance. And I might be old. They might, they might look at me and, again and say, uh, just another old man having a go at us. The, the game's changed, times have changed. Not preparing for trips, it hasn't. Preparing for a trip whether it be a three-test match series or a five-test match series, you cannot go in underprepared. Because if you do, you're one nil down, you're two nil down, and that's it. It's game over, especially when you go somewhere as tough as India. India's India's tougher to play than Australia in their own back garden. You know, it is. And 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 for me, if this is rumour is right, then it beggars belief for me. I'm just very concerned that uh, the motivation might be more about the guarantee of a good club sandwich and 18 holes on the Colin Montgomery Dubai Creek golf course than it is about practice facilities. And just a final word, actually, I, I'm I'm usually quite quick, Harmy. I'm usually quite sharp, but mostly, um, oh, I can be very, very slow. And it's taken me about a week to come to the realisation that if England do play six batters, a top six with Ben Folkes at seven and four bowlers, then that means Joe Root's been picked as a batting all-rounder. I mean, he's going to have to bowl a dozen or 15 overs a day. Yeah, he's going to have to bowl a lot. And I think that's the the interesting thing about the squad that's going over. It probably did pick itself. And I, I, I didn't see you know too many glaring omissions from the England cricket team when it came. I wasn't a big one on Liam Dawson. You know, I listened to what Rob Key was saying about and I understood that he's got a lot of negativity from it, about sort of county selections and stuff like that. But I think you need a different type of spin bowler going into India rather than somebody that you know bowls well in England. You know, I like the Hartley selection. I think that's good. I'm pleased of taking a, an inexperienced spinner to give him some give him some education and and, and potential mileage. Um, who they see and identify that is potentially further down the line going to be an asset for the England cricket team in Shahid Bashir. So I didn't have a problem with that. The, the issue for England, for me, is always going to be 
who who marries the bowling attack out. And if it's not going to be Stokes, the likelihood is it's going to be Root. I'm not saying I'm not comfortable with that, but I think at some point in this series, Joe Root might have to go from number four to number three and then to bowl 15 overs in innings. That, for me, then I, I start thinking, you know what, that's a little bit uncomfortable. I think he might have to bowl 15 overs in a day. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind a test match. You're listening to Following On here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and Durham Hall of Famer Steve Harmison. And a reminder, you can now watch us on YouTube as well if you're not doing so already. Just head over to the TalkSport Cricket YouTube channel uh, and subscribe. Let's talk about Nathan Lyon then. Uh, Harmy, he began the first test match against Pakistan in Perth, needing four wickets to uh, to reach the 500 club. Just the third Australian to do so behind Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne. He was asked what he felt like being uh, alongside the two greats of the game. And he said, I'm not, I'm behind them <laughs> and always will be. It's interesting. We'll hear, we'll be reminded in a moment what Ben Horn, the Australian cricket writer, told us a couple of weeks ago about him being determined to play in the 2027 Ashes. If he keeps taking wickets at the current rate, then he'll have 640 by the time he arrives in England in 2027. But for now, 12 years in the making, um, and it's a heck of an achievement, especially for a finger spinner. It is. For a finger spinner, it is. It's it's an unbelievable achievement. For somebody who has not got the, uh, the ball that goes the other way, he hasn't got the deucer at, <clears throat> that obviously Murray had, or obviously Warney and Cumbler were obviously wrist spinners. It is a, it's a monumental achievement. And from somebody who has... Who has solely played Test cricket? There's not many that uh, hasn't really played a great deal of, of white ball cricket, if any, as Nathan Lyon. Um, it is a, a wonderful achievement. You look at the list that he's on now, just behind the likes of you know Broads up up there now, you know Cumbler, you know with Jimmy, and then obviously McGrath and 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 um, and Warren and and, and Merle Lithran. This our, our great game has has gone for over a hundred odd years and. You know, we haven't got many that have gone by 500 test wickets and, you know, Nathan Lyon is, is a real champion at that. And he, some might have thought, him limping off at Lords that we might never see Nathan Lyon again. You might you might have thought that might have been Nathan Lyon's job done when he walked off at Lords during that test series in, in, in the summer against England. But Ben says, you know, Ben Owen said the character that wants to play and wants to be and still involved in the next Ashes and then the next Ashes again back in England in 2027. You wouldn't put it past him, and you know, he's been a great servant to, to Australian Test cricket. It'd be a big ask to come in 2027, but if he does, he'll still be a, he'll still be a threat because he is a, he's a wonderful bowler. OK, let's remind ourselves of what uh, the esteemed cricket writer Ben Horn told us a couple of weeks ago. I mean, he is serious about coming back to England again in 2027. I mean, uh, it's a long way away, and who knows whether that will happen, but He's dead serious about it. I've never seen a more shattered cricketer to be flown home from a series. I mean, he was genuinely distraught about um, leaving the Ashes and what impact he could have made if he'd stayed, if he'd been able to play a further part in the series. So Nathan Lyon will endeavour to get to England in 2027. Whether Father Time beats him or not, we'll wait and see. But um, yeah, this season that he's getting uh, for Lancashire is certainly going to help. So, you know, he's got a long way to go as far as he's concerned as a test cricketer. That was Ben Horn uh, talking to us uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the main thing we wanted to talk to him about was uh, Mitchell Johnson's inflammatory column about David Warner. And he kind of doubled down on it. Warner scored 164 in the first innings and then made a duck in the second innings. <laughs> Mitchell Johnson has gone for him again, saying that he rode yeah. his luck and uh, and he, he kind of really doubled down on it. And Fascinating um, stuff, but I mean, yeah, Warner did have a, a bit of luck, um, in fairness. But he, you know, he's made 164, and as much as I am not his greatest fan, you can't help admiring what he's done there. And it was brilliant afterwards, Harmy. I'm sure you saw the clips of him saying that he didn't care about the criticism. That was the first thing he said, and the second thing. I don't care what people write, do, or say. <laughs> And the second thing he said, and then I think if you want to ask him what the third thing was, I think he wasn't, he didn't care again. So no, that's Debbie Warner. It is, like I said, many, many times, we're going to miss him. Love him or hate him. There are characters in the game you are going to miss when they're gone. And David Warner is definitely somebody cricket will miss. More for the, the sort of bad boy headlines and the bad boy stories and the negativity towards, you know, the way he's, he goes about his business. But that's a story in itself. He did ride his luck, but if you're going to get 164, 
you're going to have to ride your luck. You know, you were out there for so long. I thought Pakistan has a good, decent, well, it's not a bad bowling attack Pakistan have. I just thought Warner, when he did ride his luck, he, he punished bad balls. And there were some bad balls on, on offer. To double down Mitchell Johnson and have a go again after somebody scored 164. I think sometimes you just have to put your foot in your mouth, leave it there, and bring <laughs> it out a little bit later on when he gets no and no or no in 10. Um, there's obviously something seriously, seriously wrong between Johnson and and Warner and let them have their fun because it's fun for everybody else to see. But you know, I, I do admire a fast bowler who gets not for 100 and still sledging. Uh, I think Mitchell was, he's been there a few times on the field and now I think he's finding himself off the field. That he's, um, his fight and the, the, the fury of, of having a go at David Warner I think he might need to wait until he has a couple of low scores and not 164. Okay, moving on. There are some stories that uh, we are inherently biased about, and this is one which you are probably inherently biased about, um, but in the best possible way. Dale Benkenstein has swapped Lancashire for Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. He's left Gloucester and uh, he'll take over at Old Trafford. You're his his biggest fan. Um, You know what a brilliant captain he was, and uh, I think he's had some... Significant success as coach as well, although not at Gloucester, uh, more uh, at Hampshire. That's a big move. That's a big move, that. That's a big loss for Gloucestershire, you would have thought as well, as well as a big gain for Lancashire. I think it's a big gain for Lancashire. It's a big blow for Gloucester. Benke's a great man. He is, yeah, I can't speak highly enough of of the person, of the captain, um, his philosophies of the game, um, the way he, he reads the game, the way he sees the game, his relaxed manner around... That, that for me, when he was captain around the dressing room of, well, if we need nine and over, we need nine and over. If the wicket's green and it's semen, that's it. It's green and it's semen. We've still got to do our jobs. And a bit of realism in the way he, the way his outlook of the game was. A wonderful player as well. Um, but just a, a wonderful character. And I think, I think Lancashire have pulled off a coup there because I think Dale Benkenstein, if you've got him in your dressing room, You've got somebody with high quality, as a, not only as from a coaching point of view, but from a person as well. And I think that, for me, will stand Lancashire in good stead. They've lost Graham Onions, who's going to come back to Durham, which I think is great for Graham. Glenn Chappell was always going to be somebody massive to replace. It was, it was huge. And you know, when Ashley Giles left, we were thinking it's not a, as big a blow when Glenn Chappell stand, stands in because... He is he is Mr. Lancashire. He is this, the stature of the club. So <clears throat> for somebody to go in after Chappie was, is always going to be a difficult a difficult task. But I think they've got the right man. I think they've got a good man, and I'm sure the the Lancashire players will enjoy working working with Dale Benkenstein, especially Keaton Jennings, who obviously Benke's known for a long, long time, even before Keaton came to Durham all them years ago in the academy when he was at Durham on Durham's academy. Um, I think Benke's had a, obviously a connection with that family for for a number of years. So that captain coach will be um, will be a great relationship and one a bit like Jeff Cook's relationship when Jeff Cook was coach at Durham with uh, with Dale Benkenstein. They worked brilliantly together, and I'm sure Keaton and and, and Dale will work well for for Lancashire. Okay, one of the best interviews that we've had on the show in the entire year was done by neither me nor you. It was done by our producer, Scott Taylor, who spoke at the beginning of the English summer to Surrey Director of Cricket, Alex Stewart. And I just want to remind you of uh, one of the most pertinent things he said during that interview. If you're just going to be a, let's call it a T20 player, because if you're a good T20 player, you'll then be contracted to the 100. Mm. Well, if you're only going to be available to your county for what the T20 blast lasts, what, six weeks? Does that player need to be on a 12-month or multi-year contract? That's the questioning. Still earn the money and the right level of money in that six-week period, but should the county be responsible for that player outside of that six-week period and perhaps two weeks leading into the blast? And the rest of the time, they're inverted commas a freelance cricketer where they'll go off and play for Mumbai Indians, Registan Royals, you know, Big Bash, whatever it may be, because... Currently how it works, they're under contract to us, they go away, they'll come back, they'll want to have coaches' time, man hours in the indoor centre, have sidearm, have bowling machine, have the expert coaches telling them what to do or advising them what to do just to get ready to go off to play in another franchise competition. 
Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I've got a little injury, so I'll be treated by the Surrey physio, yeah. the Surrey doc, the Surrey medical staff. We'll rehab them as well to get them fit to go and play another franchise tournament. Oh, by the way, you're not fit for the T20 blast, mm. but we've looked after you for the rest of the year. So, And I'm looking ahead there in the crystal yeah. ball. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if contracts change in the coming years because... You know, if they play for Sydney Sixers, just to name a team as an yeah. example, if the player gets injured playing for them, Sydney Sixers don't put them back together again. No. They come back to their county. Yeah. You know, is, is that right? That was Alex Stewart talking to our producer, Scott Taylor, um, at the beginning of the year. And the reason that I wanted to bring that clip uh, um, and remind listeners of it, Harmy, is that um, Surrey have signed Jason Roy and Tom Curran on white ball contracts and... Given the other commitments, particularly the um, Major League Cricket in America, they could play as few as six games for Surrey. Surrey have signed them on a 12-month contract. They could play six games. That flies directly in the face of what Alex Stewart told us at the beginning of the summer. So either he's changed his mind, I don't think so, or he's been overridden, or he's not in control of, of contracting. I don't think Stuart will, will change his mind. I think, unfortunately, if you want Jason Roy and you want Tom Curran, I think that's the deal on the table. And I think that's probably why Surrey have, have had to take it. And I, and I think it, it's a difficult one, because I'm 100% what Stuart's saying about the freelance and about contracts and everything that goes with it. Players go and play all around the world. I think sometimes you have to just be a little bit careful when you're talking about players who you've brought up. If it, if it is a player that's signed for Surrey from another county and you haven't educated them, you haven't brought them through your system, they haven't come through the academy, they're not fixtures and fittings, at, haven't been solely fixtures and fittings at your club for the time of their whole development as cricketers all the way through, then I think you can more more easily go, well... I'm not signing you on a 12-month contract. No chance. I'll give you them six games and that's it. That's all you're getting. But I think because of I think because of that, they're academy graduates. I think you have to, I think you've got a duty of care to them and they've obviously got a duty of care to you. So you've got to make sure that financially it's not hurting you as much as what another player would be. But unfortunately, from a player's cricket association's point of view, they'll probably be setting the boundaries of these contracts and the clubs have got to sign them if they want players of the stature of Jason Roy and, and Tom Curran. But I have got a little bit more leeway with players who come through an academy system to utilise the club's facilities because of, of what they have done for the club in the past. OK, Harmi, this is a question for next week, but it's a little teaser I'm going to offer for listeners now. And this is going to be a massive challenge for you because I'm going to ask you for a one-word answer. If, <laughs> if if England had lost the third T20, would we have been talking this week about who Matthew Mott's replacement should should be or could be? Uh, and because it's a question for next week, I mean, England might win the series, in which case we're not going to be talking about that at all. But if they'd lost that game, would we have been spending a few minutes this week, if not more, talking about a replacement for Matthew Mott? Yes or no? Yeah, I think we would. It's not going to be a one-word answer, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we not only would have been talking about Mott's replacement if we lose this series, I think by some of the stuff that's come up in the series so far, especially in the 2020, if they did lose, did lose and got, went 3-0 down, I think question marks would again Josh Butler as well, whether the captaincy is the right fit for him. Is he tactically up to the job? Because if there are a few bowling decisions that have gone out really head scratchers, um, but they didn't, they won. So they're still in the series, it's 2-1. But if next week comes and England have lost the series 4-1 or 3-2, then I've got a, I've got an idea of where I would go when it comes to the World T20. And I'll leave you that one for next week. Okay, there's the teaser. And the final word this week goes to the Aussie cricket media, which was up in arms collectively about Ricky Ponting missing the final day of the Perth Test match and Trevor Bayliss missing a game in the Big Bash League to travel to Dubai to attend the IPL auction. And the headlines in the Aussie papers were hilarious. One of them was, IPL supremacy gone mad. 
It made me laugh, Harmy. It made me laugh so much. What were they expecting? What were they expecting? What were they expecting? Did they not watch the World Cup semi-final when they changed the pitch at the last minute? Come on. <laughs> even 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 the egotistical Australians have got to realise you've got no skin in the game. Neither is the ECB. It's all about the BCCI. It's all about the IPL. Until you get your head around that one, you'll be up in arms for the rest of your for the rest of your lives. India rule the game. Some will say it's a good thing. Some will say it's not a good thing. But at the end of the day, that's where the money is, and that's why they'll all flock to the IPL. And another subject for next week is the new window they're suggesting in the September-October for another IPL competition, which would end bilateral cricket. But as I said, that's for next week. You've been listening to Following On with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And if you have missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, download the podcast from the Following On feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week. Uh, with a look ahead to what's come, what's to come in 2024. But for now, this has been following on. The Men's Room, a talk sport podcast in partnership with Toolstation. From masculinity to mental health, friendship to fatherhood. Join Tom Skinner and Neil Razor Ruddock for the podcast that gets to the nuts and bolts of what it really means to be a man. Listen and follow now via your preferred podcast portal. The Men's Room, in partnership with Toolstation. Save 5% on everything you need for a whole month with the new Toolstation Club. Join today online, in-store, or via the app. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.